you would, turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Romans. The book of Romans and chapter 1. In July of 1505, a 21-year-old young man was walking alone on a path that led to the Saxon village of Stotternheim. Menacing clouds began to form, and soon it started raining, like it is now. And I imagine this young man, he quickened his pace as he sought to get into the village and out of the storm as quickly as possible. But soon, along with the rain, there was thunder, booming thunder. Uh, This was a severe thunderstorm. And then suddenly, a bolt of lightning struck the ground, knocking this young man down. And in his fear, longing to make it to the village safely, hoping just to survive, the young man cried out, St. Anne, help me. I will become a monk. Martin Luther's father, Hans, was a miner. And St. Anne was the patroness of minors. And so that's why it was she that first came into Luther's mind to call out to in his moment of distress. Hans Luther was a successful miner. Not wealthy, but certainly better off than many others. And he had worked hard to provide his son Martin a good education making it possible for Martin to go to law school. In January of 1505, Martin graduated with a Master's of Arts degree, and yet he was unhappy. His soul was tormented. Like most everyone in the Holy Roman Empire, Martin had learned from his childhood, both at home and at church and at school, That Christ is a righteous judge sitting in heaven and that a judgment day is soon to come. Temptations to sin are everywhere. Uh, Luther came from a superstitious people who saw demons behind every tree. Always working to, to catch you in some sin. And Luther more than most felt his own sin. And so now, six months after graduating law school, 21 years old, having made this vow in fear, Luther felt absolutely conscience-bound and obligated to keep it. And so to the anger of his father, Luther turned his back on his career in law, and he presented himself for the monastery. The Catholic Church had lots of ways that people could deal with their sin so that they might go to heaven. Uh, You could perform sacraments. You could buy indulgences. You could go on pilgrimages. Or you could pray to the saints in heaven to intercede for you on your behalf. And all of these could help. But the best thing to do, the surest path to heaven was to become a monk. For the person that just needed to know that they had done the absolute enough, this was the thing to do. 
Uh, The people of Luther's day believed that Jesus had actually already blown the last trumpet for the day of judgment to begin. But they believed that Mary in heaven had fallen at the feet of Jesus and asked him to wait just a moment longer for the sake of the monks. Aquinas had taught that when a person became a monk, it was like a second baptism. At that moment that you became a monk, you became as innocent as Adam in the garden before the fall. And any time a monk sinned after that, as long as they repented, they became as innocent as Adam in the garden again. And that was only for monks. Only monks had that privilege. When he was 14 years old, Luther had seen with his own eyes Prince William of Anhalt. This was a man who was born a prince, wealthy and rich, but he had renounced it all, given up all his great power, given up all his wealth, taken vows of poverty, and become a monk. Luther said, I saw him carrying the sack like a donkey. He had so worn himself down by fasting and vigil that he looked like a death's head, mere bone and skin. No one could look upon him without feeling ashamed of his own life. And so this was the path that Luther had chosen so that he could find peace with God and have some assurance in his heart that he was going to heaven. As a monk, he observed seven times, uh, seven times each day a period of prayer. The monks went to bed early, and then they would rise before 2 a.m. in the morning. They made the sign of the cross, they dressed themselves, and then they would gather at the church in the monastery. They sprinkled themselves with holy water, and then they prayed at the altar. And then for the next 45 minutes, the monks each took their place in the choir, and they would have a 45-minute period of singing praises to God. And then they would file out of the church in silence, all to begin the day's work. Things were fine for more than a year until Luther was assigned to perform his first Mass. This was the moment when, as a priest, he would perform the miracle of transforming the bread and the wine into the actual body and blood of Jesus. According to his Catholic understanding at the time, the Mass was Calvary all over again. It was Christ crucified all over again as Christ was sacrificed anew on the altar of the the church. Luther knew how to do it. He had seen it done hundreds of times. He knew how the whole ceremony was to be carried out. He knew the words he was supposed to say. And it was going to be an exciting day. Disappointed as his father was that he had become a monk, his father was going to come witness this first mass that Luther would lead. So Luther began the ceremony. He was speaking aloud and he spoke the familiar words. We offer to you the living, true, eternal God. And here's Luther's testimony of what happened. He says, At these words, I was utterly stupefied and terror-stricken. I thought to myself, With what tongue shall I address such majesty, seeing all men ought to tremble in the presence of even an earthly prince? Who am I that I should lift up mine eyes or raise my hands to the divine majesty? The angels surround him. At his nod, the earth trembles. And shall I, a miserable little pygmy, say, I want that or I ask for this? 
I am dust and ashes and full of sin. And here I am speaking to the living, eternal, and true God. And at that moment, Luther trembled at the terror of the holy. He made it through the ceremony. Afterwards, there was to be a time of celebration with his father and his fellow monks, having completed his first Mass. But the conversation with his dad did not go very well. Hans said to him, You learned scholar, have you never read in the Bible that you should honor your father and your mother? And here you have left me and your dear mother to look after ourselves in our old age. And so Luther and his dad Hans, they went back and forth over this. And Luther protested, but God called me in that thunderstorm. He called me to be a monk. And his father replied, God grant that it was not really an apparition of the devil. And that struck Luther. Could it have been the devil? He was suddenly very perplexed. He was filled with turmoil. Could it be that he had actually been following Satan's voice and not God's? And how would he know? Now, even going into the monastery didn't have an assurance of salvation for him. He was vexed. And so Luther threw himself headlong into every possible good work. Sometimes he would fast for three whole days. He would sleep without blankets and he would lay out in the freezing cold. One story says that whenever Luther was in his chambers, if he suddenly had a wicked thought, a lustful thought, a hateful thought, he would throw off all his garments, he would run outside in the cold, and he would toss himself into the water of the monastery pond. Luther said, I was a good monk. I kept the rule of my order so strictly that I may say if ever a monk got to heaven by his monkery, it was I. But if I had kept on any longer, I should have killed myself with vigils, prayers, reading, and other work. And then came his great opportunity. Luther was selected to make a trip to Rome. There were so many opportunities to get more grace in Rome. Because there were so many relics. There were the bones of the apostles. There were the chains that had once held St. Paul. There were the scissors that were used to cut St. John's hair. Indeed, the full bodies of Peter and Paul were in Rome. Visitors who came and saw these relics were given more grace by God. More reason to hope that their sins would be covered when they got to heaven. But as Luther walked around Rome, he was so disappointed. It was clear that Rome was using all of these relics and special sites as nothing more than tourist traps to make money. Questions about what he had been taught his whole life were suddenly beginning to whisper in his soul. He went to the Scala Sancta, the Holy Stairs, where it was said that if you crawled up them on your hands and knees, saying a prayer at each step, by the time you got to the top, you will have released a soul from purgatory. Luther regretted that his own parents weren't dead so that he could go ahead and release them from purgatory. So he said, I will, I will climb the stairs in honor of my grandfather. He crawled. He prayed at each step. He kissed each step. But when he got to the top, all he could say was, who knows whether it is true. It's been a long introduction. That's because over the next five sermons, we're going to be celebrating together the Protestant Reformation and what God did through Martin Luther over 500 years ago to recover the gospel.
Uh, I'm using Roland Baton's classic biography of Luther to help you hear his story. And in this way, I hope you will better appreciate and love what we're going to see in the pages of God's Word. So this morning, I want us to see the text that changed everything for Luther. And it's here in Romans 1. Uh, Luther gets home from Rome and he's transferred to a different monastery. He's transferred to Wittenberg. And there he's still a monk, he's still a priest, but now he is appointed a professor at the local university. Uh, A fellow named Staupitz, a man who had taught Bible at the university for years, chose to retire, and he encouraged Luther to take the post. Staupitz could see that Luther was really struggling to find peace. And he thought it might be good for Luther to be able to study the Bible, that that might bring help. And that's exactly what happened. In 1513, Luther began teaching first through the book of Psalms, and then in 1515, he moved to Romans. And he was now 31 years old. And here are the two verses that changed him. Look at Romans 1, verses 16 and 17. He's studying for his class. He comes to Romans 1, verses 16 and 17. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it... The righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Paul says in verse 16 that he's not ashamed of the gospel, that is the good news about Jesus. And why is Paul not ashamed about this good news? Because this message, he says, is the power of God for salvation. And this salvation is for everyone who believes. So we're going to make a few points, and then we'll hear the difference that this made for Luther. Number one, all people need to be saved. That's implied in our verses. It's made abundantly clear in verse 18. Why do we all need to be saved? Because God is holy, and we are sinners. He is good, and we are wicked. The day of judgment is coming, and God will deal with us as we deserve. And that's bad news for us. Salvation means being rescued from the fate that we deserve. Salvation means going to heaven when what you deserve is hell. Dear friend, Are you saved this morning? Are you a saved person? Number two, none of us have the power to save ourselves. We don't have the ability to make ourselves right with God. That's why we need the power of God for salvation. Our power isn't enough. You can try all you want. You're not going to stop sinning on your own. So many people think that they have free will, but the reality is they're slaves to their sin. Uh, All they have to do is try and go one day without thinking bad thoughts or saying cruel words or doing wrong deeds, and they will see very quickly how enslaved to sin they really are. 
Our only hope is to be saved by a power outside of ourselves. And Paul says the gospel, the message of Jesus, is the power of God for salvation. Number three, it's our third truth. God has the power to save. It's very clear in verse 16. What we cannot do for ourselves, God can do. And number four, God gives this saving power through the gospel. And isn't that strange? God uses a message. God uses words to bring his power upon sinners in order to save them. The way God rescues a person from hell and brings them to heaven is through this message about Jesus, the gospel. So how does this work? How does God, through the gospel, save those who hear and believe that message? Well, at first, Paul says something that sounds really strange. Verse 17, do you see it? For in it, that is the gospel, that message of Christ crucified for sinners, in that message, the righteousness of God is revealed. What? That, is, that does not sound like good news. The righteousness of God is our problem. He is righteous. And we are unrighteous. And it's because He is righteous and we're not that we're under His wrath and we need to be saved. If the gospel simply tells us that God is righteous, that's just pointing out the problem. That's not a solution. Imagine yourself in the shoes of Martin Luther. He wanted so badly to understand what Paul was saying in this book of Romans. And verse 17, in the midst of his anxiety, particularly tormented his soul. Luther said that during this time in his life, he hated that phrase, the righteousness of God. He said he hated that phrase. If the message of the gospel is the message that God is righteous and we are not, how is that possibly good news? It's terrible news. Well, it's certainly true that God is righteous and we are not, but that is not the message of the gospel. That is the bad news that must be understood before you can get to the good news of the gospel. When this verse clicked for Luther... It not only changed him. Verse 17, clicking for Luther, led to the beginning of the Reformation. All that came from it throughout Europe. It's the reason there's a Baptist church sitting on this corner in Rocky Mount today. We would not be here had God not worked through verse 17, clicking in the mind of Martin Luther. Let me see if God will perhaps cause some light bulbs to come on this morning. Maybe it'll click for you today. I hope so. What does it mean That in this gospel message, the righteousness of God is revealed. Well, that word revealed means something that was not seen and now you see it, right? There is something that that it was not manifested, now it's being manifested. The, the, The curtain is being pulled back. Uh, Paul uses this word in 1 Corinthians 1 7. He says, So that you are not lacking in any spiritual gift. As you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, at this moment, you don't see Jesus. 
He's with us in this room by the power of the Holy Spirit. Christ is here. But he's not here physically. He's not here visibly. You, you don't see him. But Paul says there is coming a day when Jesus will descend from heaven and every eye will see him and everybody will be gathered to him. He will be revealed. He will be manifested. He will be seen. He will be beheld. So here in Romans 1, when someone hears the message of Christ crucified and they believe the righteousness of God is revealed. I see three possibilities of what this might mean. All three of these possibilities are true, but only one of them is Paul's point here. Option one. In this message of Christ crucified, the gospel, the attribute of God's righteousness is being revealed to us. So that is, somebody preaches the gospel, and I'm sitting, and I hear the message of Christ crucified, and I realize, oh, God is a just God. He's a righteous God. And suddenly the attribute of God's righteousness becomes clear for me. God is always fair. He's always right. That's certainly true. In fact, the cross does teach us that God is righteous. God's not like Allah. Allah, he just sweeps sins under the carpet. He doesn't deal with them as long as your good deeds outweigh your bad deeds. The bad deeds don't have to be dealt with. Not the God of the cross. The God of the cross says every sin must be dealt with. In the message of Christ crucified, we do learn about God's attribute of righteousness. But learning that God is a righteous God doesn't save anybody. The demons know God is a righteous God. And they're not saved. So I don't think that's what Paul's saying here. Option two. You with me? Everybody in? All right. Option two. When the message of Christ crucified, the gospel, when it is heard and believed, the righteous character of God is made manifest in the life of a believer. So here's the, the next option. Maybe what Paul is saying is that I am driving down the road, and I'm listening to a, a preacher on the radio. And I hear him preach the message of Christ crucified. And I believe it. And suddenly, my life begins to change. And the righteousness that characterizes God begins to characterize my life. Slowly but surely, I'm becoming holy. Slowly but surely, I'm becoming godly. Slowly but surely, I'm becoming more like Jesus. The righteousness of God is being revealed in me as I believe the message of the gospel that is absolutely true. But notice that in verse 17, Paul says, in it, the righteousness of God is revealed. Not in us, in the actual message itself. And so we can't take option two. Option three is our answer. This is the interpretation that Luther discovered that rocked Europe and ultimately the world. It is an interpretation that has stood the test of time. I believe it's correct. And if it gets you, and if it gets a hold of you, it revolutionizes your life. The righteousness of God revealed in the gospel is the righteousness from God for us. Now let me explain that. The bad news for us who are unrighteous 
is that God demands that we be righteous. God demands that we be holy as He is holy. But the good news is that God, through Jesus Christ, gives us the righteousness He demands from us. He doesn't just tell us to be righteous, but through the gospel, He gives us the righteousness He requires. Here's how Luther talked about it. Listen to these words. He said, I had indeed been captivated with an extraordinary ardor for understanding Paul in the epistle to the Romans. But up till then, it was a single word in chapter 1. In it, the righteousness of God is revealed that has stood in my way. I hated that word, righteousness of God, which according to the use and custom of all the teachers, I had been taught to understand philosophically regarding the formal or active righteousness, as they call it, with which God is righteous and punishes the unrighteous sinner. In other words, he says, all my life I had been taught that all that meant was that when you preach Christ crucified, we learn that God has an attribute of righteousness, that God is righteous. Okay? Though I lived as a monk without reproach, I felt that I was a sinner before God with an extremely disturbed conscience. I could not believe that he was placated by my satisfaction. In other words, there was nothing I could do to appease God. I did not love. Yes, I hated the righteous God who punishes sinners. I was angry with God and said, as if indeed it is not enough that miserable sinners eternally lost through original sin are crushed by every kind of calamity by the law of the Decalogue without having God add pain to pain by the gospel and also by the gospel threatening us with his righteousness and wrath. In other words, Luther says, we already have the law of God against us. We already have the Ten Commandments that just says sinner, 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 sinner. And now you're going to tell me that the gospel just does the same thing? It just says you're a sinner? Why would God just take worse and make it worse? Right? He says, I raged with a fierce and troubled conscience. Nevertheless, I beat upon Paul at that place. I most ardently desired to know what St. Paul wanted. At last, by the mercy of God, meditating day and night, I gave heed to the context of the words. Hmm. Context. Context, what a good thing to do, right? Let us be a people who read verses in their context. Namely, in it, the righteousness of God is revealed as it is written, he who through faith is righteous shall live. There I began to understand that the righteousness of God is that by which the righteous lives by a gift of God, namely by faith. This is the meaning that the righteousness of God is revealed by the gospel as it is written, he who through faith is righteous shall live. In other words, church, this verse is about how we hear the message of Jesus crucified for sinners. We believe that message and in that moment, God's righteousness is given to us so that we can go to heaven. We are unrighteous. He is righteous, and he accounts his righteousness to us the moment we believe so that we can go to heaven. The moment we believe on Jesus, our sins are covered by the righteousness of God. We are declared right in the sight of God, not with our own righteousness, but with one that God supplies. 
Luther said, I felt I was altogether born again. I had entered paradise through open gates. He said, I now love the word righteousness with a love far more than the hatred I used to have for it. He says that Romans 1.17, he says, for me, it was the gate to paradise. All right, Mount Hermon, kids, teens, I, I want to make this as simple and as clear as I can. So here we go. Here is the glorious truth that not only led to the Protestant Reformation, but has radically changed the lives of millions in this world and many in this room. Though we are sinners, when we hear and believe the message of Christ crucified, and we rest in Christ, God credits His righteousness to us and sees us as holy in His sight. We're not yet made holy. Oh, we're still sinful, aren't we, Christians? But we are counted holy. The illustration I like to use is a report card because it resonates. If I am a student who made all F's on my report card, well, I know, that, I know what would have happened to me as a kid if I had come home with all F's on my report card. There would have been swift judgment in that, in that case, right? So it's like this. It's like God has given us Ten Commandments. And when we seriously look at each commandment and apply it to the heart, we find that we get an F on every single one of them. And that brings God's judgment. We deserve hell because of our Fs. But Jesus Christ came to earth and as a substitute for sinners, he lived a perfect life. And he got a perfect A in every single one of the Ten Commandments. He obeyed his God fully. He did everything his father required. He was the star student. When we believe on Jesus, his perfect A's are accounted to our report card. Just like at the cross, for those of us who believe in him, all of our F's were placed on Christ's report card. And he bore the judgment we deserve. He took all of our guilt and bore the judgment. And when we believe, all of his perfect righteousness is given and accounted to us. It's the great exchange. It's the greatest message in the world. It's, it's hallelujah. Amen? <laughs> hallelujah. That, that, that we who are sinners can be made right with a holy God. But I have to show you that that's true. I can't let you just take my word for it. So very quickly, why, why am I sure that's the right way to understand this verse? Why am I sure that Martin Luther was right? You know there's a lot of people today who would say, oh, but Martin Luther, he got it wrong. No, he got it right. Here's how we know. Number one, there's the end of the verse. Context, remember? The end of the verse. Do you see it? Verse 17. At the end of this verse, Paul proves his point by quoting from the Old Testament. He quotes from Habakkuk 2 verse 4, which says, The righteous shall live by faith. Notice the connection between the first half of verse 17 and the second half. The first half talks about righteousness and faith. Do you see those words in the first half? And the second half talks about righteousness and faith. Do you see those words in the second half? In the first half, we have the righteousness of God from faith for faith. In the second half, we are told that this is what Habakkuk meant when he said the righteous shall live by faith. So the second half of the verse is the evidence, the support for the first half. Notice 
that the righteousness that is God's in the first half of the verse is man's in the second half. How? By faith. It's very clear. I think it is very clear that God is saying, here's what you have to do to be saved. Just trust. Just believe the Lord Jesus Christ. Salvation is a gift, freely given. Christ's righteousness given to you. And then if there were any doubt, there's Romans 3, 20 to 24. We don't have time to study those verses this morning. It's the biggest moment of the whole letter. It's the crux of the letter of Romans. In those verses, Paul's making that very same point. Just, just listen. I can't even take time to preach on it. Just listen as I, as I read these verses from Romans 3, beginning in verse 20. By works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. Since through the law comes knowledge of sin, but now the righteousness of God, recognize that phrase, has been manifested, remember the word revealed, apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. Listen carefully. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Isn't that clear? The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. So at the Mount Everest of the Bible, at the place where the Bible teaches more clearly than anywhere else how God saves sinners, this is the explanation given. We come to Jesus empty hands. We come to Jesus not claiming anything of our own. We say, God, if I'm going to be righteous before you, you got to make it happen. Because I can't make it happen. I need the power of God. And we come to Jesus, and Jesus comes, and he says, you trust me, and all my righteousness is accounted to you. God will see you as if you have lived the perfect life I've lived and his blessings will be on you from this day forward. Surely, goodness and mercy will follow you all the days of your life. For Luther, this meant that salvation was to be found not in relics, not in the scissors that cut John's hair, not in pilgrimages, not in fasting, not in sacraments. Salvation was to be found in one place and one place alone, trusting the Lord Jesus Christ. And so the great cry of the Reformation was sola fide, faith alone. Latin scholars, y'all remember that? Sola fide, faith alone. We just heard Paul say that by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. It's not that I have to believe on Jesus and then I also have to do this, 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 and this. No, Jesus alone is our righteousness before God. So here's the the close. If you want to be free from the guilt of your sins before a holy God, trust Jesus. If you want to know that you're going to heaven and not to hell on the day of judgment, trust Jesus. Your good works will let you down. Jesus will not. The peace and the assurance that Luther so longed for, the peace and assurance he had been desperate for, he found when he put all of his eggs in the basket of Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. What are you trusting in this morning? If you were to die before this day ends, what are you counting on? To make sure that things go well for you eternally. 
Teens in this room, if you died right now, where would you go? Adults, it could happen. Heart attack this afternoon. We're dead. Where would you go? Would heaven or hell be your fate? My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ, the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. What is beneath your feet this morning? Is it the solid rock of Jesus Christ on Him and Him alone I stand? Or is it the shifting sandy foundation of something else? Here is the gate to paradise. Trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Faith alone. Let's pray.